Welcome to another episode of Challenges and Icons, and today I'm talking to Alicia Navarro, who is the founder and CEO of Skimlinks, which is the leading content monetization solution for online publishers, and it operates out of London and San Francisco. Alicia has evolved the business over many years, starting in 2006 with a social decision-making tool called Skimbit. But in recessionary times and in an effort to earn more from the Skimbit site, Alicia decided to try affiliate marketing, but do it with a twist. So spotting a gap in the market for such a technology and with co-founder Joe Stepniski, Skimlinks launched in November 2008 as a standalone commercial platform to help other businesses monetize their editorial and user-generated content. Well, before launching Skimlinks, Alicia worked for 10 years designing and launching internet and mobile-based applications in Australia and the UK for companies such as Vodafone, IBM and Optus. But her ability to make tough, intuitive decisions to guide her company to success makes her a well-regarded entrepreneur in the tech startup community. And she was named in Management Today's 35 Women Under 35, which focused on entrepreneurial women who thrived despite the economic difficulties. Well, Alicia, welcome to Challenges and Icons. It's a real pleasure to talk to my first um, person operating in the digital world and building a very successful brand and to talk to you about Skimlinks. Um, Skimlinks is a great business. Um, it's a new type of business model. And, um, and, it, and for people like me, who've sort of grown up in the non-digital age, um, it could be a little bit hard to understand. So I wondered if you could just open by briefly summing up what you do and how it works and why it's been a big success. Sure. Um... And, and it's a very common question. Uh, so um, Skimlinks is a uh, service that helps websites make money from their content. Uh, so we do that by um, uh, tracking the product references and product links on a blog. And if someone clicks through on those and buys something, we help that publisher get a commission on that sale. So for example, if you are a uh, blogger about you know, fashion and you write a great blog post about you know, a great you know, pair of shoes that you've seen at John Lewis, um, if you link to that product on, John, uh, on your website and a, a customer reads your article, clicks through and buys that pair of shoes, we help you get a commission on that sale. Um, so it's been um, a fantastic way to bring a new type of monetization to uh, all sorts of websites beyond the traditional display advertising and uh, you know, text-based advertising from Google. Um, and it's really caught on really um, powerfully because all the other types of advertising uh, are usually intrusive and take up screen real estate mm. and are generally things that people avoid. But what we try to do is monetize the actual content the actual reason that you go to a website, and we try to do it in a way that's completely unintrusive to the user experience. In fact, it actually helps because you're, you're helping a user buy what you've been reading about. And, and it puts sort of power right in the hands of the individual blogger or influencer in a way that has never been done before. Exactly, and the funny thing is it's always been available, like affiliate marketing, which mm. is kind of what this form of monetization is called, has, has always been around. But the problem with it is that it was never made for blogs and, and content sites. It was made for, you know, your price comparison sites, your travel comparison sites. Mm. 
Um, and it was just too technically difficult, time-consuming. Uh, it just wasn't worth the effort for blogs to, to do the work that was needed to be able to create affiliate links in their content. And so what we kind of, uh, the, the big idea that we had was, gosh, what if you could automate that process so that making money from affiliate links became a completely automated thing that would mean that suddenly it was available to all those content sites that before would never have bothered making money in this way. Mm. Well, that was my next question, which was your light bulb moment, which, which drove you to sort of you know, have the idea. Um, was it a kind of like an evolutionary kind of thing, or was it just like, did it just kind of like come to you when you, it, when you it, were doing it? It's a funny uh, story because when I first started this company, it wasn't Skimlinks. It was a completely different business. Mm. It was sort of Pinterest-like. Mm. Uh, it was called Skimbit, and it was a way that you could skim the bits that you liked uh, while you were kind of trying to research the purchase of a product. So let's say you were trying to you know, buy a sofa. Uh, and the idea being that you could bookmark different sofas that you were looking at from different retailers have it on one page and then be able to share it. And, you know, we built this and it was working, but we, we couldn't work out how to monetize it. You know, we started offering it as uh, on a license basis to other websites. So if you paid, you know, however much a year, you could license this and add it to your website. But this was all in 2008 when the world was sliding into mm. recession. And although we had one customer, to get a second customer was proving to be impossible. So um, we started experimenting with other forms of revenue. So we thought, well, how about we go for a revenue share? But we weren't big enough to command the attention of the bigger advertisers. So we thought, well, what about affiliate marketing? You know, we've got all these links to retailers on our site. Wouldn't it be great if we could find a way to automate turning those links into affiliate links? So we built this technology just for ourselves initially, and I was off there pitching for investment from venture capitalists, pitching for another customer, and all the time I, I found it fascinating that no one was interested in you know, what I thought was my very sexy front-end mm. social decision-making tool. Everyone seemed to be gravitating towards this very kind of unsexy monetization technology. And my aha moment was this Friday night when I was desperately terrified that I was going to become bankrupt and my business was going to fail and my employees were going to become unemployed. And I thought, gosh, well, everyone's interested in this. What if we made that the business and dump everything else that I'd spent the last two years building? Um, and I ended up cold calling this website in the north of England that had a forum about audiovisual equipment, randomly, and, uh, and asked, them, asked him, look, I'm thinking about doing this. If I made this available, would you use it? And he said, yes, I would. So I said, okay, give me two weeks. I hung up the phone, called up my CTO, pitched him the concept. He was in. Within two weeks, we had a prototype out there. I had one more business, and I got my term sheet for my seed funding deal. And that was it. That, that was the start of Skimlinks about six years ago now. A great story getting it all off the ground and, 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 and making it all come to life and, uh, and businesses there. And now you have to start building your brand, Skimlinks. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the kind of creative marketing efforts and tools and ideas that you use to engage with your clients and audiences? Sure. Um, so in the early days when we first started, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and so the processes that we used were very much uh, people driven. Uh, my co-founder Joe and I spent a lot of time going to events, conferences, uh, meetups. Uh, we would meet uh, customers and ask them to recommend us to someone else and we spent a lot of time out on the road talking to people, talking to customers. Um, and, and getting them to love us, getting them to be passionate lovers of who we were as a brand and as a company. Uh, and that, that investment all those years ago has made a difference. You know, even to this day, we're winning customers 
because of the relationships that we made three or four years ago. Mm. Um, and so I, I'm a big uh, encourager of uh, you know other young companies seeking to create a brand for themselves uh, to really invest in who they are, like spend time being good to people, mm. spend time going out there and contributing to, to your community and, uh, and those relationships end up paying back, you know, years down the track sometimes. Mm. So that worked for us in the early days and, uh, and now uh, our methods, you know, we still spend a lot of time going out there, uh, out to the community and I also encourage my team to do so mm. um, and I also hire a team, you know, the kind of uh, people that are fantastic ambassadors for the brand besides being good at their job. Mm. Um, so they become, you know, the ambassadors and the evangelists of the company as well. Um, and we're, we have this kind of concept called Skim Love, which you may have seen. And that's, that's very core to our brand. It, mm -hmm. it, it uh, came about very organically. It came about by our team um, describing the, the way that we approach business and day-to-day -day working with each other, which is if you're going to do something, if you're going to sell, if you're going to work in an office, do it with a bit of love. Do it with a bit of goodness out there. Sell yourself, not just your product. And even if you don't win, but you probably will win, but even if you don't, you feel good about it and that generates a kind of energy that benefits, will benefit you down the track. And, uh, and that's really become very core to our culture, that if you just do good and be a good person and sell yourself, that ends up manifesting itself in ways you didn't anticipate beforehand. Mm. And that's, that's the kind of secret to the, the Skimlink story. Okay, so, well, that's great to hear that there was a real human side to, um, you know, behind the brand and the drive and the power is in. Um, but ultimately, it is a technology-driven brand offer and, and technology is revolutioning people's lives around the world and is going to continue to do so in ways that we can't even imagine. So, talking about you, do you see yourself as a, as a problem solver, a revolutionary? Um, and talk about how you see yourself in the future of technology and how it's, and innovation is changing people's lives. That's a nice broad question. Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, I've always been a, a technologist. I, I taught myself how to code when I was 10 years old um, and uh, have been a you know, passionate technologist ever since. I studied computing science at university and my whole career has been in technology one way or the other. And the reason I think I love it is technology is a means by which I can create. And, uh, and I love the idea that I can have a problem and I can think of where I want to go and somewhere in between is the answer and technology is the way I get there. And I'm a you know, passionate believer in uh, looking at a problem and being really inventive with a solution. Approach it with the belief that there is an answer rather than that, that there isn't one. Oh, a technological artist. There you go. Yeah. Well, which, is, which is great because it leads on to my next question, which is about creativity. So what do you see as the future path for creativity and commerce in business? What's your personal view on that? Um, I think one of the parts of Skimlinks that I am the proudest of is that we are now in a world where we expect content to be free. No one wants to pay the subscription to the Financial Times or mm. you know, to, to pay a, a fee to access content. We expect it for free, and if we can't get it for free from one place, we'll go to somewhere else. And that's you know, great for the consumer in some ways, but in another way, you're, you're creating an ecosystem that's encouraging you know, poor quality work. And I love the fact that that's something that we try to tackle. And the way that we do that is we say, you know what, continue writing your content and focus on doing the bit of your job that you love, which is creating the content. And what we're going to try to do is find a way to help you get rewarded for the role that your content is playing and doing it in a way that's really unintrusive. 
Um, and I like that what that does then is to a blogger or to the editor of a large content site, rather than them have to separate, uh, segment their day into writing articles and then working out how to monetize it and then writing a bit more and then working out how to monetize it, we can just say to them, you know what, just focus on doing what you love. Mm. Just focus on creating really good quality content and managing your community, which is really what your company's uh, USP is all about. Mm. And just leave all the icky monetization aspect of it to us because we'll do it better, we'll do it quicker, we'll do it easier. Um, and that, I think, is the role that we play in, in the creativity process um, on a wider basis. Mm. We let the creative people concentrate on what they do best and we help them get paid for it. Mm. You facilitate creative freedom. I think so, and it's been really interesting looking at our customers who are, you know, bloggers or journalists or content creators. And the greatest thrill I get is when they actually say, you know, you've 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 given me freedom. Mm. You have completely, you know, uh, uh, changed my 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 life in a mm. way in mm. my day to day basis. I now can do the bit I love, and I don't have to yeah. do all the other bits I don't like. And uh, and and I like that that is encouraging. Um, people to be more creative uh, rather than having to segment their day in order to pay for their food. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do mention uh, Pinterest um, and for a bit of background for, for people who are watching this, um, as we understand it in 2012 Pinterest faced a bit of a backlash from their community because they didn't openly declare that they were using skim links. Um, to generate revenue and they subsequently pulled the deal. Now this was no way anything to do with you, it wasn't your fault. But what do you think this is teaching business and uh, future relations um, about you know, the, re the relationship you have with your customers and your consumers? Do you know that story is hilarious? For completely different reasons from what you've said. Oh. That what that story teaches is the media are silly. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> okay. So the truth of the situation is that Pinterest had been using us for many, many years without anyone noticing um, that they had disclosed us in their terms of service. And, uh, and almost every other, you know, a huge majority of sites are already using us, including, hilariously, one of the blogs that was critiquing Pinterest for not declaring hmm. the fact that they were running us Ironic. was a customer of ours and had not declared it on their site either. So I think it just, it, what it showed me is the... Um, the, the fact that the media don't often research their stories. It was a, it was a juicy tale. Mm. Pinterest had been the golden child for a while and there was no you know, gossip about them. So this kind of became a, a reason to have a gossip about, uh, about Pinterest. Um, it, the, the fuss was over in you know, a day and a half. Yeah. And in the end, it was fantastic because we then had an avalanche of similar um, customers, uh, similar types of websites become customers of ours. And it really educated, I think, the world into what is an actually very uh, common and wonderful form of monetization. Mm. Uh, I think uh, the problem had been previous to the Pinterest announcement that a lot of people just weren't even aware that it was possible to make money in that way. You know, we, you've talked about scalable intimacy uh, uh -huh. at the heart of your business and uh, the ability to operate at a scale but still maintain intimacy and care with customers and stakeholders which is always a bit of a problem for challenger brands as they sort of get this massive sort of like upswing as they go on that curve of sort of acceptance and you know, worldwide kind of um, you know, accessibility. So um, is this uh, the, the, the continuing business model for you, scalable intimacy and do you think that is, uh, is it just for you or is it, should, it be, should it be for everybody? I, I, I 
I do use that expression a lot and it's um, a way I think I, I describe our approach to um, marketing and managing our customers. Um, you know, it's very easy to be uh, intimate, directly intimate with a small number of your big customers and we do that. But the challenge is how do you, um, how are you intimate or, you know, uh, how do you relate well to your customers when there's a lot of them, you know, if there's a hundred thousand of those. And so scalable intimacy is the way that I talk about um, communicating on mass in a way that still makes the customer feel special. Hmm. So it's a, it's a guiding principle for how uh, a large-scale customer should operate. Um, the good news is I think a lot of particularly uh, consumer websites and apps do do that. You know, they are very good at communicating with cheekiness and affection and humor to their customer base. It's a harder challenge, I think, for some uh, B2B businesses who are very used to being corporate and official and factual. And I think that they lose a trick there uh, and that, you know, ultimately businesses are populated by people and you should still communicate as if it was a person, not just a, a rigid company. So let's talk about um, another thing we've heard you say, which is that you've been quoted as saying that you want to conquer Silicon Valley. Um, Did I say that? <laughs> in our research, it showed up. So, um, if that was the case, or if you have aspirations with uh, Silicon Valley, what, what are the challenges that you think you face there? Uh, I mean, I, I think I, I, I did, really. I mean, a, a few years ago, we decided that we wanted to conquer Silicon Valley, and I set off with my bags packed with uh, one of my team, and we set up our San Francisco office. Uh, and we've grown that now to six people. Um, and only uh, only a year ago, I moved back to London to, to be here with the team. Mm. Um, the San Francisco team is now running successfully. They're a fantastic group. I visit them every couple of months. They visit here every couple of months. Mm. Um, so I think that that is um, a useful model for how uh, British companies can conquer Silicon Valley. I don't think it means uprooting totally and, and closing your offices here. But I do think it means um, establishing a really good base there, if it's appropriate for your company, mm -hmm. um, and, and keeping up the communication and the cultural ties between the two offices. Mm. And that can be very difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, we really worked very, very hard at it, and it's still very hard. You know, a, an eight-hour time zone difference between offices and, you know, a 16-hour flight makes it very hard mm. to be intimate with your team there. But it's necessary, and the benefits for doing so are huge. Yeah. Can you maybe tell us uh, about some of the other challenges which you're taking up or you're facing at the moment as you look to the future? Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, products that we're looking to invest in. Mm. You know, we, um, our, our vision is that we want to help publishers monetize intent seamlessly. And we've been doing that very well with a number of our products. Um, but our goal now is to extend further. Uh, so yes, we're doing a lot of thinking about how, what we prioritize, what we should do next, and how we can help our publishers the most. Um, but that's kind of the fun part well, of it as well. I'm not sure if you would describe yourself as a role model for future tech entrepreneurs, but I certainly would. Um, and, but, and particularly in the female sector, uh, which is, seems to us still underrepresented. Um, what advice would you give as a woman who is uh, clearly a successful entrepreneur in the tech world um, to promote technology and entrepreneurial thinking? I mean, I think the key to being a successful woman entrepreneur is never to call yourself a woman entrepreneur. At the second that you start to see yourself in that way, you've, I think, already put yourself down a notch. You're either a great entrepreneur or you're not. 
and uh, and you either have attributes that help you in that process, whether they be empathy, uh, the ability to compromise, the ability to, to you know hire and lead well, uh, or you have other skills like dominance and power and you know what good negotiating skills, what have you. The fact that I'm a woman is irrelevant. I've got I'm a technologist. I have a computing science degree. Uh, I, I did code. I now can design products. And uh, I encourage women to focus on what they can do and not what they can't. Well, congratulations on what you've achieved so far. It's a fantastic story um, to sort of turn affiliate marketing into a, something as dynamic that you've done with the Skimlix brand is, is tremendous. And um, yeah, I know you've won a ton of awards, and uh, long may that continue. And uh, you inspire other people to <laughs> yeah. do, Unfortunately, to do the same. Unfortunately, we don't win the young, uh, young startup award any longer. We've been here too long, yeah. but uh, you know, we can still try to win you know, yeah. innovation awards. Well, you can only be new kid on the block once, right? right. So, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Okay, for me. pleasure.